Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Rivka Weinberg. She is a professor of philosophy at Scripps College in Claremont, California. As a philosopher and bioethicist, Dr. Weinberg specializes in ethical and metaphysical issues regarding birth, death and meaning. She is the author of the books The Risk of a Lifetime, how, when, and why procreation might be permissible. And I think I left a book out here. Or <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, oh yes, it's it's two books: the risk of a lifetime, and then why? No, it, no it's uh, one book. Oh, okay, 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 okay. So here it is. I, okay, okay. So I, I guess I messed a little <laughs> bit on the introduction here because I. I use the plural books, but anyway, so, okay. sorry about I'm that. I'm on another book, so eventually it will be books. Okay, right oh, now, okay. so by, by the end, please mention the other book. <laughs> yes. Well, that'll be a while in coming, but I'm working on a book about meaning. Okay, okay, great, great, great. And so, yeah, okay, so I guess that today we're going to, to tackle a very controversial topic. Uh, I mean, I've already had Dr. David Benatar on, on the show, and he's a straightforward antinatalist. But by, by the way, before we start, do you also label yourself as an antinatalist or not? No, because I don't think it's never permissible. I'm sympathetic to that permit um, position because I think life is bad, but I think, but I don't think that that's an objective view for everybody. Okay. I accept when when, pe when most people say that they're so happy to be alive and they love life, I accept that. I mm -hmm. think there's a subjective and an objective element to well-being. I don't. So I'm not persuaded by Benatar that he has some special, accurate uh, assessment of the human condition, and everybody else is deluded except him. I don't see why, what the evidence is for that. Why yeah. he's privileged. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's good that I started with that question because when I when I first talked with him, uh, I also confronted him or tried to confront him with that same fact that perhaps uh, we can only uh, subjectively evaluate life, right, and not really objectively, or or, or maybe we have both, but we can't reduce it all to an objective way of evaluation, right? I think we have both. Yeah. And I think they both, are, they both uh, count. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Be, be, because I, I think that he tends to put aside uh, the, um, the ways by which people are biased in negatively evaluating life, because those are, are also biases. It's yeah, not... It's he not thinks only the positive ones, yeah, right? Right. He thinks he talks about a positive bias, but he doesn't talk about a negative bias or the fact that we, we know, people have temperaments, and you know, there's the glass half full, half empty. There's different ways of uh, evaluating experiences, of thinking about your life. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some objective conditions. Um, you know, like Martin Ossena Nussbaum's objective list theory of well, human well-being, which is kind of Aristotelian, which I think is accurate, but that leaves a lot of room. So yeah, if you're starving, things are not good for you. But to tell somebody who, uh, let's say, for example, Benatar thinks it's terrible that you're hungry before you eat, um, which I also do, because I hate being hungry, but other people don't hate it. And they're like, I'm so excited. I'm yeah. 
so, so we were talking about Benatar and I mean, your work focuses mostly on the ethics of procreation, right? Yeah. So why is it that we have to take procreation seriously uh, from a moral or, a, or an ethical perspective? Because it's something that we do to another person without asking them and it's of extreme consequence. And so, you know, forcing someone else to live is is uh, sort of the flip side of murder. <laughs> You're forcing someone into existence. It's a big deal. If I had asked, I wouldn't have said yes. It's very, I would not have said yes if I had understood. And I've had a really pretty easy life. So I'm very lucky. And still, because of the risk, of, because of the risk, you know, I'm just waiting for the other shooter drop every day. Like, where's my catastrophe? You know, who gets through life without a cataclysm? So, um, so to me, it's kind of strange that it has not been given more attention. And although I said I'm not an antinatalist, I do see arguments for it. I'm, I'm worried. I'm not fully resolved. Mm -hmm. As I say in my book, it's like there are some worries that we can't fully put away. The arguments for antinatalism don't hold up. They have serious flaws, but they still leave me with worries that I just can't fully answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that sometimes perhaps we should uh, uh, we should let it we should let people evaluate that kind of thing. I mean, we should present them the arguments and let them decide. Uh, we are talking about procreation, but maybe later on we'll talk. We will talk about things like euthanasia and suicide, and then. When it comes to that, at least, I mean, and since we don't have direct access to other people's uh, subjective psychological experiences, then, I mean, we might be making a big mess if we don't allow people to, uh, to have access to euthanasia or other services like that, for example, I guess. But one difference with procreation is we leave it up to the person. Yeah. But it affects mostly another, I mean, not mostly, but to a great, you know, what you're doing something to someone yeah. uh, very directly and of great consequence. And euthanasia is usually doing something to, hopefully, doing something to yourself, not to another person. Mm -hmm. So that makes procreation um, more important to really think through and to make sure that you're getting it mm -hmm. close to right than to wrong. Yeah. And you've already mentioned that, but in your book you talk about you say that we should think of life as a risk. Could yes. you explain that? Because life is a mixed bag of benefits and burdens, pleasures and pains, happiness and heartbreak, or whatever else you want to call it, good things and bad things. And it is also very unpredictable. Some things are, so, so it's, just, it's just fraught with peril. Mm. You know, there, there's a lot of risk. There's different ways, that, now there's more than one rational attitude to risk. And so some people think, um, you know, when that, are, you know, a risk is an opportunity. So many great things could happen and other people are focusing on the terrible things that could happen. And they could, each one is, is correct that good things can happen, bad things can happen. Uh, so that's the way in which life is a risk. You don't know what's going to happen. It could, the risk could ripen into some of the worst harms. Or, 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 you know, into, you know, it can blossom into joys, but you'll, you'll probably have some of both and it's not so predictable which one. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, how important is it from an ethical perspective that 
babies in this case have no saying in their coming into existence? So certainly you're deciding something for someone else. And mm -hmm. so you have to really take that into account. You have uh, paternal, I think you have paternalistic authority because you decide everything for your children. Um, Shauna Schifrin argues that the fact that children don't consent uh, makes all procreation problematic because you're violating children's consent rights. But children don't have consent rights. They're not capable of consent. And it's true that you impose life on them for their whole life. But we do a lot of things to children that last their whole life. Uh, we give them names. I mean, you could change your name. But we do some things that we, let's say we give them violin lessons. And if, you know, if you don't learn the violin when you're a kid, you're never going to be a professional violinist. We do things to kids. or We make decisions for them that will have lifelong effects in our position of, of paternalistic authority, where we have to really prioritize the children's interests and their good. And so I think we can use some of that paternalistic authority to make a decision about whether to create someone or not. But again, here too, I'm still a little bothered by the fact that there's no agreement. Uh, but I don't think you can go as far as saying, oh, well, therefore it's wrong, because we don't, because children are not, they can't agree, and they're not in a position to agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just they're not in a position to agree, they don't have the capacity to agree. So it wouldn't mean anything to ask a child if they want to be born, even if you could do it. Their answer would not be uh, an answer given in full rational capacity. Yeah, yeah, I get it. So, uh, I mean, and w when it comes to the ways people try to justify the fact that they have procreated or that they want to have a baby or something like that, do you think that most justifications that people give are ethically correct, let's say? No, because I think most people think like, oh, I'm giving them this gift of life. If not for me, they wouldn't exist. No one needs to exist. Who is harmed by non-existence? No one. There's no subject for this. There's no subject for the deprivation. There's no subject for the harm. There's nothing. Um, and life is not a gift. It's an imposition, right? If you give someone a gift, what kind of gift is it when, if you don't, when you have to work so hard not to be harmed by that gift? It's like giving someone a sword dangling over their head and telling them they'll enjoy dancing beneath it to get out of the way. And maybe they will. But that's not exactly a gift. It is, I mean, David Vellman calls it a predicament. You're putting them in a position. I call it a risk, right? You're giving, you're imposing a risk on someone. It could turn out well. It could not turn out well. But a gift comes free. Life is a job. <laughs> Life is a job and a risky job. It's not like, oh, you gave me this violin and I don't like it or I don't want to learn it, so I'll just put it aside or I'll give it away. You can't, so li life, it, you have to do a lot of work not to be harmed. And so in that sense, I just don't think gift is the right analogy for it. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's a very, a very, very good point because even for people that have uh, an easy life, let's say, compared with lots and lots of people out there, even they have to work hard to keep that life going on, right? Yes. It's only they made it easy. I mean, not that they didn't also have good luck, but luck is not enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, so, I mean, le let me see here. Um, okay, so uh, we've already talked a little bit or touched on the issue of parental responsibility related to procreation. Could you tell us what is the ASMAT theory of parental responsibility that we, you refer to in, in your book? 
So the hazmat theory of parental responsibility is a theory of responsibility that we have for dangerous things in, under our possession and control, in this case, our gametes. Um, and so what's, what I like about the theory, what I think is one of its biggest advantages, is that it fits. it's a theory that fits with the rest of our uh, moral, social, and legal ideas about how we should operate with dangerous possessions, uh, dangerous possessions that we own and control. And it's not just some ad hoc theory that you decide, well, let's see what result we want and then work backwards to kind of figure out what theory we'll have. Um, it's the, you know, you have, you have these danger, why are gametes dangerous? Because they could join with another gamete and become a person, this vulnerable, needy thing that's a lot of help in the beginning and that, you know, that, that has a whole life of risk in front of, in front of it. And so you got to be careful with that thing you own. It's like if you have a pet lion, you can't let it run outside. You got to be careful. Uh, and so um, now it's true, you could choose not to own a pet lion. We come born with our gametes, but we have ways of blocking them that are pretty good. Right? When people choose, you know, reliable birth control or two forms of birth control, or if you're really not into it, you can, you know, get a sterilization procedure. So it's not as if we don't, it's not as if our gametes are uncontrollable. They are controllable, and it's our responsibility to to control them, or to or to uh, or to mitigate the consequences if it grows into a person. Well, that's the person you're responsible for. Mm -hmm. so that's the hazmat theory. Yeah. So uh, I guess that sperm is kind of a hazardous chemical. Yes. <laughs> Something so like that. So are eggs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a, that's a very interesting way of putting it. I guess that most people would feel offended by <laughs> by putting it that way. I I imagine. I think it's accurate. Yeah, and I think that it gives us a, a way. Uh, you know, again, it fits our it it puts parental responsibility into a theoretical framework that is consistent with how we treat mm -hmm. other thing, other actions and other materials of this type. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me ask you now, what kinds of situations you think justify someone having children? I mean, what are the kinds of conditions, situations, decisions that people can make to, from an ethical perspective, properly justify having children? Well, the first thing is to do it for the right reason. So. Uh, because nobody needs to be born. You're doing it because you want to. Uh, and so you have to make sure that you are, you want to be in a loving relationship with the child, raise the child. Otherwise, why are you having this child? For just some kind of possession, pet, gift to give to someone else, right? That doesn't, it's not a, it's not a, it, to, in order to, in, to impose a risk of such consequence, you have to really have a good reason and you have to take your responsibility seriously. So you have to be properly motivated. Um, and then you have to, uh, then um, what I argue for is that you ha it has to be um, fair so that the risk you're imposing on your future child would be a risk you would be willing to have had your parents impose on you. Of course, this is not really possible, but it's theoretically possible. So you think to yourself, well, what rules would I be willing? What are the fair principles of procreative you know, justice and fairness. Let me think about, well, if I didn't know 
who I would be, which rules would I pick to govern procreation, and then I would be born, hypothetically, born under those rules and procreate under those rules. So my parents would be constrained. So let's say they couldn't have me at, at you know, 49 because of the risk of Down syndrome, setting aside abortion in the, uh, as a possibility in, the, in this hypothetical. And then if I'm 49, which I am, I could not go ahead and have a child now because of the risk. So that's the way the, print, the, the, the that's the moral framework that I have. Mm -hmm. That is correct. Mm -hmm. But then I guess there are some complications there. For example, if someone is living in a dire situation or in dire circumstances uh, as an adult, I mean, on the one hand, we could consider that uh, that person shouldn't have any kids because they will be born in the same circumstances and then they will... Uh, live in those circumstances, they will be brought up in those circumstances and then as adults they will suffer probably the consequences of having lived in that kind of situation. But then on the other side and if we also think about probably the, the interests of the parents, uh, couldn't it be the case that at least we could open some exceptions for people that live in such dire circumstances that having children could be probably the only source of pleasure yeah. for them? So, so I talk about this in my book. I don't talk about it in terms of pleasure. I talk about it in terms of fulfillment and ways of living a life of human flourishing. Uh, and I think it does present a very tragic kind of a case, but I don't think the answer is always that, they, that you can go ahead and procreate. I think you have to think to yourself, is it fair? What is, what is the greater burden to say to someone in that circumstance, you may not procreate? or to say to a future person, you will be born into this circumstance. And so you have to really look at what at that kind of conflict, even though it's very, it's a really tough conflict. Um, and so if you know for sure that your child's life is going to be a real misery, then the fact that it's a little, this faint little bright spot in your misery, I don't know that that really justifies it. I don't think it does, actually. I think there's a limit to how far this exception can go. I talk about these cases in my book, cases of slavery and the Holocaust. Uh, and most of the time in those circumstances, people tried not to have children because they didn't want their children in those circumstances. Um, and sometimes they were, they were long, you know, the Holocaust was, was a was a big war it was you know most everyone thought it would eventually be over um slavery was hundreds of years it didn't look like the end was in sight uh, and even in that case a lot of times slave women would try to not get pregnant to abort their, their to terminate a pregnancy because they didn't want their children born into slavery even though for them it would also be this bright spot in their otherwise hard, you know life full of such um such injustice and 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 problems and suffering um, so I accept the fa I think the um, the example is a good example. Sometimes these the sacrifices might be steep, but the way to look at it is which is the steeper burden, which is the harder thing to to bear, to not to not be able to have a child in a circumstance where that's maybe your one avenue of flourishing and in you know enjoying your life, or to be born into that kind of a circumstance and live a life like that. So that's the way I think we have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, don't you think that another thing that we should put on the table here is to consider that, uh, okay, so these people, uh, the supposed 
the prospective parents, let's say, uh, are people that already exist. So we should care about their well-being and not about the well-being of non-existent beings. But then the complication comes when, uh, if they say that they really need to have kids to, to have a fulfilled life, then we are talking about another person that comes into existence and that we also have to care about their well-being but you know i'm just trying to i was just trying to reframe it to try to focus on the fact that um, we have to care about the well-being of people that already exist and sometimes that is part of it right well i think that all existences. I think you have to care about anyone who does exist or who will exist. So I don't think, I think that the, the how much they count is on par if you're going to create the person. If you're not going to create the person, we're just talking about a, a figment of your imagination. It doesn't matter at all, right? And so that's why I distinguish between merely possible people, which is a hypothetically possible person that could exist but never will, and a future person. A future person's interests count just as much as yours. What's the difference if they're going to exist later? So when you plan on a procreative act, you have to you have to consider the person in their full personhood because that's what you're planning on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. So let me ask you this now. S since every time people procreate, it's a risk because we can't really be sure and people can't precisely control um, what I mean, the character, the traits that the person that is coming up there uh, will have. If, for example, the person will suffer from depression, if the person will be a pessimistic one, and if they will go through a lot of suffering in their lives or something like that. Do you think that even if the a majority of people say that their lives are worth living? Because there is a minority of them that say the opposite, do you think that um, we could make an argument that people should never procreate due to that, uh, even if it's small percentage of people that, or percentage of risk of creating someone that will be suffering their entire life? So when we think about imposing a risk, we think about the likelihood of it ripening into a harm as well as how bad that harm is going to be. And so sometimes even a terrible harm is is uh, considered, a, even a risk that could result in something terrible is still rational to impose or to accept on ourselves if the likelihood of it ripening into a harm of that sort is pretty low. So I think we have to look at the nature of the risk in each case. You have to think to yourself. And I think the fact that temperament is somewhat heritable makes a difference. Um, so if you come from a long line of miserable people who are who have good circumstances and are still depressed and miserable, then that counts. Then your child will, you know, has a likelihood of of of, uh, of inheriting that temperament, and so that 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 increases the risk actually. But the fact that you look at the whole population and there's a minority that has a terrible circumstance, um, I don't think that's the. I think I think that's um, not specific enough to the case. So. Each person thinking about their own procreative activity has to think about the kinds of risks that they will be that their child will will have to face their particular child in their particular circumstance. There's always the unknown. There's always the risk of catastrophe. Um, 
Uh, so it you have to weigh that out. We weigh that out in our everyday lives. Every time we step outside, there's a risk of everyday catastrophe, even without stepping outside. <laughs> That's how. And so um, the fact that something is so that something so terrible can happen has to be seen in context of the likelihood that it will happen for that particular person, not for the general population. Now, depression is common, but it's it, but most times people cope okay with it actually, and it usually even though people, you know, goes away on its own. Not, I'm not talking about crippling depression. I'm talking about the kind of depression that's more common. And so not that I, you know, I'm a big advocate for depression, but I'm saying that it's not the kind of, it's often not the kind of catastrophic event in a person's life that makes the risk of living not worthwhile in that case. But it, but it could, it depends. And so I wouldn't look at the, you know, you have to look at the specific case and the risks that seem most likely in that case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me just say that I would also not advocate for depression because I've suffered from it several times now and <laughs> it's not it, it's not a piece of cake, let's say, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. So, so um, okay, so let, let's say that we have a couple that is a rich couple, so they have uh, very good conditions to raise children but they have uh, both a history of chronic depression, generalized anxiety and things like that, and they have uh, cases of suicide in their family. I mean, to, I, was, um, I want to ask you to what extent we should hold people responsible for their decision of procreating, because let's say that they have this information, but uh, they are not knowledgeable enough to know that this is something heritable, for example, even though they've seen that occurring several times in their family. Do, do you think that that would be uh, in some way ethically relevant and that we should hold them responsible for procreating on, under those circumstances or, or not? Well, I don't think procreation is a special case in, in, in response to that kind of question. How much people are responsible for what they do is uh, very, very hard to answer. We have to think about free will. We have to think about what responsibility we have to learn things. Um, so I think it, because procreation is a, is a weighty thing to do, it's a really you know, important and, um, thing that we do for another, to another person, yeah, we should educate ourselves. We should do the right thing but the terms of responsibility it's like any other act you're responsible to the extent that people are responsible for what they do mm -hmm. you got you got to you know so and there's so many things come in so many factors will come into play um you know do we have free will does it matter if we have free will can we be responsible for things we don't know how much are we responsible to educate ourselves uh so i think the level of responsibility is high because it's a it's a it's an act of great consequence that's the only so it's sort of on the par of things we're going to do. It's the kind of thing we should really be careful of, um, and that's you know that's the extent to which I could answer about responsibility. Mm -hmm. Right. So in your book, uh, you try to reframe the question, and instead of asking when is procreation or, or the other way around, sorry, instead of asking. Uh, if procreation is always right or always wrong, you try to answer when is procreation permissible, right? 
because I, I don't think that the arguments that it's almost always right like, mm -hmm. succeed, like the non-identity problem. Uh, I, I don't think that's, I think that's a mistake. And I don't think that the argument that it's always um, wrong, like the antinatalist arguments succeed. So I think that then we will have to have a more nuanced principle that's going to tell us what makes it right, what makes it wrong, when is it right, and when is it wrong. And so that's the kind of principle that I try to develop with my principle of procreate of you know the motive procreative balance, which I described earlier, which tells you to think about you know how whether it would be worthwhile or rational for you to accept the risk of um, of being born under the circumstances that you are now going to create a person under, and plus the motivation restriction to make sure you're having a child for a respectable, uh, worthy enough reason to do something of such consequence. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and in the book, uh, you call your approach to the permissibility of procreation uh, Kantian, Rawlsian, Rawlsian contractualist approach. So could you disentangle that for us and tell us what that really means? Well, it's Kantian because it's principle-based. It's not outcomes-based, like a consequentialist theory, and it is not virtue-based like an Aristotelian theory. So in that sense, it is deontological, it's Kantian-based, it's based on the fact that you have to respect each person as an end in themselves, you can't use people, um, and you can't sacrifice one person for another. So that's sort of the Kantian basis. It, uh, it is Rawlsian in that it, is, it takes a distributive justice approach to a contractualist approach to procreation to say how do we fairly distribute the benefits um, and procreative benefits and burdens and but more uh, intuitively and fundamentally a Rawlsian approach is to say here's the fair way to decide something if I didn't know who I would be which rules would I pick to govern this activity and so that is the approach I take for procreation if I didn't know who I would be whose child I might be whose what position I might be in uh, in to raise it, you know, to be able to provide well for a child or not. What rules would I pick to govern procreation? And that's the sense in which it's Rawlsian. Mm -hmm. Okay, so le let us talk now a little bit about abortion, uh, because th that's another big topic related to procreation. And uh, I would like to ask you if you think that uh, there are cases where people would be uh, morally obliged to abort a particular child because uh, either because they have decided to procreate for the wrong reasons or they live in dire circumstances and they can't provide a proper future to their uh, to their coming ch child or something like that so I, I mean do you think that there are cases where people would be uh, morally obliged to to do that or not? That's a really complicated question. I mean, my first impulse is to say that the that the thing to do when you can't when you're not in a position to permissibly procreate is not to get pregnant, not to get pregnant and then kill a fetus or you know a developing baby. Um, uh, because my views on I didn't you know I don't write that much about abortion almost at all. But my view because my view on abortion is that it is uh, a continuum. Uh, and it's a that the, the woman has rights and the fetus has rights, and the later it is, the worse it is to do. And so it's hard for me to so I I, I can't I don't have a blanket answer to say well okay so in this case this child's life is going to be so terrible that you should have an abortion maybe very early on, if you see that you know that it, you know 
really early stage before you have brain waves and consciousness and before you have a you know something that's person like or a person um but certainly not uh you know later on in a pregnancy where a fetus is very similar to a baby um and so you might i mean peter singer says this he thinks if it, you know you can kill you can kill a baby um that the stakes are going to be much higher in order to justify something like that and so um, my view on abortion is the later it is in a pregnancy, the more developed a fetus is, the worse it is to abort. The earlier it is, the less problematic it is to abort. And so I wouldn't look to abortion as a blanket remedy. But I also, side, I kind of sidestep this question in my book. And I'm like, well, you decide what you think about abortion. And then you think about whether you can use it as a remedy. You can say, well, I'll take a risk and see, let's say, uh, if my fetus, uh, I'll test it in utero to see if it has these problems and then I can abort it. Well, if you think abortion's okay, I guess you can do that. Uh, that's not my preferred way of being procreatively responsible. Um, and, and, I, and I am not comfortable enough to say that, well, maybe in a very early stage of a pregnancy, if a child is gonna be born into slavery or abject poverty and you have a, you know, a fetus in the first trimester where there's not much going on, it's kind of a, you know, a cell ball, um, then in that case, maybe it could be a remedy. But later on in a pregnancy where a fetus is nearly indistinguishable from a baby, viable, then I don't think so. But that's, that really goes into views on abortion, um, which I have not written much about because I don't think I have anything new to say about it. Um, uh, more so than procreative ethics generally. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then what about the case of adoption? Because there are people like, for example, the, uh, the pro-life people that sometimes try to force, um, force, I mean, soci from a social perspective, let's say, to, they try to force people or they try to convince women that, uh, that don't want to go on with their pregnancies instead of aborting to let the child uh, be born and then just to give it to adoption or something like that. But do, do you think that adoption can be a proper enough solution for those kinds of cases? It depends on the case and it depends on what's going on. I mean, I think the reason why people who are um, anti-abortion encourage adoption is because then the adoption is and they think that abortion is murder so a dog giving a child to someone else is better than killing it if that's what you think so I don't think abortion is murder um, certainly uh, not um, in the first half of a pregnancy let's say uh, and so I don't you know so I, that's my view about that I think adoption is certainly not ideal um, because uh, you know for because I think a child has, you know, has an interest at least in a relationship with its biological parents. Not always. Sometimes biological parents are terrible, and adoption is great. So adoption is very complicated in that way. Um, but I, I don't. Um, I'm not sure what you're asking, but if would I say? Okay, okay. So perhaps let me rephrase the or, or yeah, rephrase the question. Um, let's say that. Um, someone that lives in dire circumstances decides to procreate and then people say that the solution for that kind of problem is for them to give up their child for adoption. Do you think that 
if from the very beginning uh, people were considering that possibility, they were weighing it on the scale uh, before uh, arriving at the decision of procreating, that that would be justifiable in, in some way. Well, I think, well, it doesn't, it's not consistent with the motivation restriction. If you're going to have a child, why would you have a child in order to give it away? Right? That doesn't, that, that's treating a child as some kind of a gift, as an object. So I don't think that that would be the right thing to do in that case from, as, as a plan. Like, okay, I'll have a child and I'll give it away. Um, in fact, actually, my aunt once asked me that because one of my cousins adopted a child and she, she was like, why don't people do this, have kids, and then just give them up for adoption? It's like this would be you know, such a gift to people who don't have children. And I was just so shocked by that question because a child is not, is not a gift. It's not a paperweight. And it just didn't seem to be treating a child with a, pro a person with the proper kind of respect. Yeah. And do you think that if in the future we develop more sophisticated reproductive technologies, like, for example, if we develop further technologies like pre-implantation genetic diagnosis where people r really are able to pin down the genes that are associated with these and that trait and they are able to pre-select the eggs or the the embryos with the with a, a set of traits that they can guarantee they will lead a good fulfilling life they won't suffer from depression and things like that and uh, I, I mean and all and all of the things that we can think about that can make uh, people uh, people's lives miserable do you think that uh, that should be that people that that should be re ethically relevant and that would make people even more responsible for their act because they would have access to that kind of information and they would be able to pre-select the child let's say i think when we're talking about pre-selection um, it makes sense to screen against um, debilitating diseases, significant disabilities that would really impact a person's ability to like, lead a life of human flourishing. I don't think enhancements um, increase that chance. And so, so I, and I don't think that the, you know, the case you're describing would be guaranteed that the person would not suffer. This is not a possibility. No matter what your genetic makeup is, there's, unless you're like incapable of feeling suffering, but then you would still be objectively suffering. Um, and so, and even things like um, depression, um, excuse, excuse me, uh, allergies, uh, you can, that would be nice. Um, you know, I think the relationship between negative mental states and other kinds of creativity and of human, exp and human expression is not fully explored. A lot of artists and writers and um, Active and people who who do who lead really uh, fulfilled lives and contribute a lot to society are also lives that have some kinds of mental anguish or suffering. And it's not so clear to me that you're going to tease this all apart and everybody's going to be on their little happy clouds of cotton candy. I don't want to live that life. I don't want to even be that person. So, um, uh, so 
you know, that's a different kind of conception of what it means to flourish and lead a good life. I do think that if somebody is at a, as a, is at a significant risk for having their children have certain kinds of real significant barriers to lead a life of human flourishing, and they could test for it, then they should. Mm-hmm. You know, but we have to consider the cost, the, the, I mean, it's, it, right now it's still, it's still pretty burdensome. A person has to go through IVF procedures instead of conceiving naturally, so they have to put their body into, or a woman has to put her body into artificial menopause and then ramp everything up and artificially produce a lot of eggs. Nobody really knows what those hormones do to a person. It's not fully studied, actually, because nobody wants to study it because people are making a lot of money from this. Um, and infertile couples want the treatment. And so uh, those are some of the burdens of, of, of the current technology. As it becomes less burdensome, it might become more obligatory to avoid these kinds of things. But I don't think we have any evidence that enhancing a person or making them smarter or run faster is going to give them a better life. Mm-hmm. Just and, them where, they, where they're smarter or run faster. Yeah. And, and what, what if we create uh, Robert Nozick's experience machine and simply plug people into the matrix or something like that? Yeah, that's just completely unappealing to me. Um, uh, and I don't consider that. That's just, you know, if you want to have your nice fantasy, we could probably do something similar now, you know, a dreamless sleep um, uh, or, you know, some kind of a serotonin drip. Um, if all you think, if that would have, you would have to be a real hedonist to accept that as as a as a plus, as an improvement, because then you have this like pure, you know, sweetness. You're like, you know, floating on cotton candy. I don't like sweets. <laughs> you know what I'm, uh, I'm just, it's not. I'm, I'm very unsympathetic to hedonism. I find it unappealing. Uh, I think pleasure is like, all right, what else have you got for me? Um, so. Uh, I'm much more interested in what's real. So the so the Robin Doe's ex- experience machine is not something that I would volunteer for, and I certainly would not force my child into it. Yeah. I mean, what's the point of creating somebody like that then? Just go into the vet and you know program the pre- pretending that you created somebody into your head. The risk could be just completely even fa- you know a fantasy. You might as well just build it in. There's no. Uh, there, there seems in, in the case you described uh, no real excuse for the procreative risk, even if it's low in that case. Let's say the machine loses power or whatever else. There's no excuse for that risk. Just go into the machine and pretend you had a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, would be, that would probably be a good solution in that case. So, um, and in what ways can we connect the ethics of procreation with the ethics of suicide and mm-hmm. euthanasia. Um, I actually did connect it in a paper I wrote. What was the yeah. name? You got me into this, right? Um, it's you know how much uh, parental parents might be responsible to help their children with suicide and euthanasia in cases where it's warranted. I think there's that responsibility uh, because I have written about this also. That I think uh, that's another paper I wrote called "The Endless Umbil- Umbilical Cord," where I talk about parental obligation to grown children. Because I think that parents are responsible to, you know, to help their children and care for them, because they impose life's risks on them. Life's risks last your whole life, so I think par- parental responsibility persists. And if what the ch- your child needs from you is help um, in dying, then you should provide it. Mm-hmm. But you, what you have to assess in that case is 
is the desire for euthanasia or suicide a warranted desire? Well, the, you know what I mean? It, does it make sense for that person? Is it rational in that case? Or, you know, if the person is depressed, should they, uh, you know, seek treatment or wait for their depression to abate? Um, uh, or um, if somebody is terminal, you can even ask, well, if they're terminally ill with, you know, can you uh, relieve their pain in other ways? And so you would, have, but if you do, but if it turns out that somebody is suffering from an end stage disease where, you know, it's just unbearable suffering and, or, and it's unrelievable, you know, unremitting, unrelievable pain, and then the, the euthanasia is, you know, seems warranted, then yeah, you should help. I think, yeah, as a parent, if that's your child, you should, I think there is a responsibility even though I think it would be really hard. Mm -hmm. You should help them get access to that yeah. service, but yeah. you are not obliged to do it yourself, right? Well, it depends if you can find somebody else to do it. You know, that's, you know, whether, you, could, you know, whether you're obliged to do it yourself, that's a high cost for you, really high cost. Uh, yeah. I think it's a lower cost for someone else. So I think that that would be, you would have to have a really, it would have to be a really pressing situation, but people have done it for their kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, they would have to um, to let them uh, their child or their children go through proper medical evaluation before doing that, because it could be the case, for example, that someone simply manifests that or expresses that he or she is going through uh, endless mental suffering and misery and just wants to go away or something like that. I mean, even then, uh, it it would be warranted for them to for the parents to really help them go through some sort of proper medical evaluation, right? I would say more than a medical evaluation. Because doctors have their biases too, especially for something like mental anguish. I know that this is the case in Europe. I think in some countries where people can, uh, uh, where people can get uh, avail themselves of physician-assisted suicide for depression. I think that's a really problematic road to go down, um, because uh, because when most people who try to commit suicide and are stopped are glad that they were stopped. Not everybody, but it's very hard to predict that somebody's um, depression is crushing and unsolvable and unremitting. I don't think we have the tools for that. So mm -hmm. I, you know, so I think that, that we have to be more careful about cases of um, mental suffering where our understanding of the disease process, or maybe it's not a disease process, is just, is kind of minimal, actually, I think. Depression is not well understood. So um, I'm, I'm, I think that uh, allowing physician-assisted suicide for that is really jumping the gun, especially because if somebody is depressed, they could kill themselves on their own. It's not like they're paralyzed or they don't have the strength for it. And so it seems a little bit like you're like pushing them over the edge. You're like standing there on the cliff and you're like, jump, jump. Yeah, do it. Um, I just, I, I think that we have to be really careful about that. And so I think that... Uh, with it in Belgium or wherever else it's allowed in Europe, I think that has that's a step too far. I don't think that the I think that that's a mistake at this point in what we in our understanding. Yeah, I, even with the fact that they have to be evaluated by three different people and experiment with different kinds of treat, of treatments before they are allowed to do it, you still think that's a uh, um, that that's taking a, a step 
too much or in these kinds of cases I do because the three doctors are doctors in their in their own culture where this is already accepted um, and the treatments uh, you know the length of time is not sufficient I've read about cases where you know they don't contact the person's family people are going through certain crises or times in their life that are difficult and so uh, yeah I don't uh, I think that right now given our understanding of depression uh, it's too far that's my opinion about it so I wouldn't make a, uh, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't say that parents have to do that for their child because I think that uh, physician assisted suicide for um, mental anguish is um, at this point in our understanding of things a mistake mm -hmm. at, at this point uh, and uh, okay so let me just ask you one last thing and still about that case of the euthanasia related to mental illness and depression more specifically um, don't you think that uh, for example you say that we can never be 100% sure that in the future someone who died by euthanasia, for example, who wouldn't have been able to uh, get over it and lead a good life and be happy and, th and things like that. But don't you think that there's a bit of an element of... Uh, um, uh, of being, uh, pa I mean, don't you think that people are a little bit patronizing in, in the sense that they are imposing an optimistic perspective on life, uh, about life on those people? Because, I, I mean, I, I guess that uh, a pessimistic perspective is also a valid one and there are people that can look into their future and to in the and to their present situation and think that if they keep going on like this then they will get into a worse and worse situation over time so. i'm kind of laughing because i've never been accused of being an optimistic person <laughs> for having an optimistic perspective i don't think yeah, i am yeah. i'm just saying a person like that so if i'm not saying go ahead and kill yourself if you want to but don't, but once you put it into, once, I think society needs to be very careful about being in the business of killing people. And so, yeah, go ahead. Suicide should be fine. You want to kill yourself. Nobody is stopping you. I'm not stopping you. But don't ask me to help you. That's a funny position to put me in. Yeah. Don't ask me to help you when your condition is unknown. When your sins are, to me, iffy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but uh, in that case, if I start to help you, I'm kind of increasing your reason. I'm endorsing your assessment. Yeah. And I don't know that that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I understand. So, so uh, j just another point. Uh, do you consider there the fact that sometimes people might really want to kill themselves, but... Uh, they can have several reasons why they can't do it. For, for example, they might be in some way physically incapable of, or there are also other complications because, for example, people might consider that if they were to do it, they would cause a lot of pain to people that love them, and that's what uh, really makes them... Uh, 
moves them away from suicide, let's say. And on the other hand, there's also the, the aspect that some, there are some people that it's difficult for them to commit suicide even though they want to because, I mean, it's really, really uh, psychologically hard for people to, to die alone without, um, I mean, without any support, let's say. You said a couple of things. It's also hard for people to kill people. So you're asking me to take this burden. You can't take it, but I should be, I should, and, and you're going to die. I have to live as a murderer or as an assisted suicider. I helped you in this way. So I don't think that's fair. I think if it's, it's hard to kill yourself, it's hard to kill someone else, as it should be. Um, so that's, that part, I think, is, is accurate. The fact that people feel um, that they have to, you know, hesitant about killing themselves because they have obligations to other people, um, I think that is accurate. Uh, it's, you know, I think that um, when I was much younger, I also, you know, had some, you know, I used to say, put it this way, I was attracted, to, you know, I took this, I lived in New York, I was attracted to this, where I'm from, and I, uh, you know, I was attracted to the subways, like Anna Karenina, to jump in front of it. But, and, you know, I thought about my parents and my, and my siblings and my friends, I didn't even have kids at the time. I think once you have kids, your, your choice of killing yourself is off the table, unless you're like really old and terminally ill. Um, but I think that th those are accurate things. You do have to take that into account. It's true. I used to jo you know, joke to myself, like I'm such an altruist. I live for others, right? Even though I don't really, you know, I'm kind of, I don't, I don't think of myself as an altruist at all, but just in that aspect. So I think that those reasons you gave for people's hesitance about suicide are valid reasons. So I don't think it's like, oh, help them get over those reasons. Those reasons should be considered. They should be given their due weight. Now, only they're due. It's not as if if somebody is, you know, in agony and an unremitting pain that they're they should be like, oh no, but you know, this one wants me to live. But it is a consideration. Sure, it is the fact that your suicide affects other people because it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay, so Dr. Weinberg, I guess that uh, I don't have any other questions, at least for this interview um let's send it here but just before we go and now going back to the introduction and uh, the the fact that i failed to mention your book properly can you mention again your book and also tell people if there are some good places on the internet where they can find your work so this is my book which i have here in my this it's called the risk of a lifetime how when and why procreation may be permissible um, and then on my faculty page at Scripps, if you just Google my name, that's what comes up. There are links to a lot of my work. So um, that's one easy way to find my work for free. The book is not linked because it's, I don't think I'm allowed to do that. Uh, to, I don't even have full, you know, full text. Um, but whatever I'm allowed to by copyright, I link to. So those are some ways um, to find my work. And I'll also mention, but this will be a couple years, probably like, three to five years in coming. I'm writing a book about um, meaning, the different kinds of meaning that we can have, what kinds of meaning we cannot have, um, and that affects on the meaning of our lives and the role that death and time plays in that. So that's a lot. So that's why it's going to be a little while, but that's what I'm working on now. So, and you still don't have even a tentative title to it or? Well, I don't like the title. I'm thinking of it right now as the meaning of it all, but I don't like it. I have to finish it and see what it all looks like and then come up with something 
irritating and cute <laughs> or something like that, a title that I like. Uh, so that's what I'm tentatively calling it, the meaning of it all. But I, I hope that's not the final title because it's not descriptive enough um, and, you know, doesn't have enough of a ring to it. So but that's okay. the title. Okay, great. So uh, I will be I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview, so that people can go and check it out. Uh, and hopefully, when your upcoming book is out, uh, we could possibly have another conversation because the the question about meaning and the meaning of life is uh, also a very interesting one. And uh, Rivka, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. And it was, again, as I said at the beginning, a great pleasure to everyone. So, Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure for me, too. And I certainly hope to talk to you again when my next book is out. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've already been doing interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields for more than two years now. And I would really like to do it for two years more or even more if I can. So I would really like to ask you to keep the channel sustainable, to please visit my Patreon page and to make a pledge there. Any amount, even one dollar, would already be a great help. Uh, you can also support me on PayPal. You can find all the links to it in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Pereira Larson, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gilinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Sergio Gondriano, Janne Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henrik Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Forrest Connolly, Doctors Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingart. My four, my four producers is Arwebe, Rosie, Jim Frank, and Lucas Stafiniak. And finally, my executive producer, Michel Ruzieski. Thank you for all.